Hello, my name is David Flynn. I'm a partner at Phillips Lytle and head of the firm's energy law practice team. As part of our ongoing discussion of New York State's Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, I'm joined once again by Dennis Elsenbeck, Head of Energy and Sustainability with Phillips Lytle's Energy Consulting Services Group. Hello, Dennis. Hello, David. Looking forward to our conversation. We're also pleased to be joined today by Andrew Whitaker, a SUNY Distinguished Professor in the Department of Civil, Structural, and Environmental Engineering at the University of Buffalo. Hello, Andrew. Good morning, and uh, thank you for involving me in this discussion. Thank you for joining us. So, Dennis, we've talked before about the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act and some of the aggressive goals or even requirements, you might call them, that New York has imposed on itself to electrify the economy, to decarbonize, to really pivot the whole economy of New York State to one that's based on clean and renewable energy and with very limited carbon emissions. Maybe you can level set for us what those goals and objectives are and how, in your view, hydrogen and nuclear energy may play a critical role. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I appreciate that. The Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act set very aggressive goals. Uh, 70% renewable energy mix by 2030, zero emission by 2040. The other goal that is incredibly important to consider is the 85% greenhouse gas reduction by 2050. So when we look at hydrogen and nuclear, that's how we've got to start looking at the transition from where we are today to where we can be in 2050. The reason I bring that up is when we discussed hydrogen as part of the Climate Action Council, uh, we discussed it in the form of colors. And the focus was on green hydrogen. Green hydrogen is produced by renewable energy. So that kind of was the, the point of demarcation. It's green or nothing. So we've got to take a step back and think about hydrogen from a commercialization point of view. How do we create innovation, new technologies that really solve the problem? This way we can take the current colors that are being producing that are producing hydrogen today and evolve to all green by the 2050 and really think about that in a high level. With respect to nuclear, it actually got one paragraph in the 445 par uh, pages of the, the scoping document. We have got to spend more time on nuclear. Nuclear has a location preference. Today's renewable energy sources, whether it be solar or wind, are based either on land acquisition or whether or not there is enough wind to sustain a wind farm system. Nuclear allows us to locate those systems closer to load centers and closer to transmission assets without having to redo them. So Dennis, we've created a lot of pressure on ourselves to really move uh, the electrification of our economy, of our lives forward, um, but really haven't positioned nuclear and hydrogen as a key component for allowing us to do that. Andrew, in your world, how do you look at hydrogen and nuclear and its role in an emergingly electrified economy? Well, Dave, I think nuclear must play an important role going forward. Capacity factors, which we haven't discussed today, are of the order of 95 to 98% for new build nuclear. And 
they're much, much greater uh, by perhaps about a, a factor of three than that possible with renewables in Western New York at this point in time. Importantly, new reactors will be compact and scalable. So when we talk about nuclear supporting the production of hydrogen going forward, co-location of facilities, we're not talking necessarily about gigawatt size reactors, but perhaps reactors that are a tenth of the size and can be scaled in the sense that you can build one 100 megawatt unit and then when demand exceeds the 100 megawatts you build another. You're not necessarily or you're not going to make an investment in a gigawatt reactor when you only need 100 megawatts initially. So nuclear is changing, nuclear is evolving and I think Nuclear as a heat source for the production of hydrogen makes a great deal of sense. Again, outlet temperatures for advanced reactors can be much, much higher than outlet temperatures for legacy reactors, and that enables different types of electrolysis, very efficient electrolysis. So, in my opinion, nuclear and hydrogen go hand in glove. So if we look at nuclear and hydrogen as playing a critical role in, in how we, at least in New York, move forward to achieve some of these uh, very aggressive requirements, we're faced with some legacy issues with both hydrogen and nuclear. So I, I would hasten to guess that if you talk to folks that are 40 years of age or older and you brought up nuclear energy, they would think of either Three Mile Island or Chernobyl. And if you brought up hydrogen, the, the thought process is going to lead people to the Hindenburg. Uh, you know, again, sort of an, some negativity around the technologies. How do we get people to the point where they're comfortable, where they sort of trust the technology and, and understand where it is today versus where it was a decade ago or a generation ago? The public, in my opinion, often conflate nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. And they're cheese and chalk, frankly. And that's a, that's a holdover uh, from 40, 50 years ago, where the public would think about nuclear reactors and a nuclear accident, and they would think of the detonations uh, that ended World War II and consider them to be the same. And they're not. Certainly the accident at Chernobyl many years ago now dinted the development of nuclear, but in my opinion for the wrong reasons. Chernobyl was a Soviet-era reactor producing weapons-grade plutonium. It was not a power reactor. The Chernobyl reactor didn't have all of the safety features that existed in US or Western plants built at around that time. So I think it's inappropriate to compare Chernobyl or a Chernobyl type reactor with modern reactors. And in fact, the Russians no longer build Chernobyl type reactors. If I look at Three Mile Island here in the United States, it was a nuclear accident it certainly was not a nuclear tragedy. No one died. It was an economic dislocation, to be sure. Lessons were learned from what happened at Three Mile Island and important work 
in human factors engineering evolved from the Three Mile Island accident and that positively impacts many disciplines of engineering uh, nowadays. And if I look at Fukushima from 2011 when three large light water reactors were by and large destroyed, no one died from radiation poisoning, not one person. So the destruction of three reactors didn't kill anyone. And I think these are important points to keep in mind. Of the western type reactors at Three Mile Island and Fukushima, they were designed in the 1960s and early 1970s. They are not the reactors we're talking about building today. So public perception is changing. I think the messaging coming out of the federal governments and the reactor developers, the Department of Energy, is positive and not biased. So there's significant investments by the federal government in new reactor technology. They are moving the technology forward as quickly as is reasonable, uh, paying very careful attention to safety and cost. So Dennis, you were part of the team that came up with the scoping plan, the scoping document for the Climate Leadership Act. In terms of either nuclear or hydrogen, how much attention was paid in that scoping process to those technologies? And in your view, do we need to think about expanding or enhancing the role of nuclear and or hydrogen as we move forward to implement the Climate Leadership Act? Yeah, Dave, that's a great question. Uh, I believe uh, in my heart that we did not spend adequate time looking at hydrogen or nuclear. Uh, we looked at gas transition almost exclusively as we then progressed through the three years of developing the recommendations of the scoping document. What that does, it takes us away from solving real-world problems uh, and it focuses on the goals. And the goals are aggressive, they're aspirational. What we lost sight of, however, is that electric demand will be increasing uh, well over 50% across our system. So there's going to be an, ele uh, an increased electric demand to electrifying our economy. So we need to ensure that we have strong electric system resiliency. Without that, what you put at risk is your uh, advanced manufacturing systems that cannot withstand any deviations in the type of electric quality uh, that they are delivered on a day-to-day -day basis. They also cannot withstand long duration outages. So when I look at the focus that we've had and the priorities we've placed on the supply side of the electric system, which is solar and wind farms, absolutely nothing against them. I do believe they have the role in our overall mix. What they don't provide, however, is a base load, the strength and the resiliency of the system. So if I look at it from the point of view that I need additional supply, I need to ensure that I have a very strong electric resilient system. I compare supply chains and I look at the supply chain of renewable energy, whether it be solar or wind, 
you have to bolster both of those technologies with long duration uh, grid level storage. The definition of long duration uh, was not addressed. I mean, some say four hours, but if you have to build a battery system to withstand a, let's say a seven hour outage, or let's say to ensure we have base uh, supply overnight, you would be spending more dollars than it would actually be worth. So you have to think about these supply chains. And the last, last thing about the supply chains on renewable energy is they tend to be located, as I mentioned earlier, where I have land acquisition or good wind. Uh, so you look at the entire uh, supply chain aspect, then you compare that against the alternatives that are out there. It, it does. It's not out of the realm of responsibility to look at some of this, let's say the solar farms that are being built today or in the queue. Could they be regional hubs for hydrogen versus having to redo the entire transmission system to ensure that all these renewable supply sources are connected? I think economics needs to play a stronger role in this process. And economics was not uh, addressed adequately throughout the entire Climate Action Council discussions. We need to balance what we're solving for for what we're trying to achieve in our aggressive goals. Without economic balance matching up with environmental sustainability, both have a tendency of failure. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're talking about sustainability, right, from an economic perspective. Yes. And these, if these approaches don't make economic sense, they're not sustainable, and therefore you just can't rely on them over an extended period of time to help meet these goals and objectives. Yeah, absolutely. When we draw lines in the sand and, and say something like, well, we'll only support green hydrogen or we'll stray away from nuclear, you're drawing a line in the sand. That takes away creativity, innovation, and alternative solutions that could be a better business opportunity for New York State that could be replicated and then New York State becomes an innovator of green, clean technology that quite frankly we can be marketing to the world. Uh, we could be a true leader if we just open our eyes, open our minds to solutions that have a stronger economic impact and still allow us to achieve our goals. So Andrew, hydrogen, it's the most ubiquitous substance in, in uh, certainly in our world. And I think a lot of people really don't understand the role it can and should play on the energy side. They may, they may know what hydrogen is, but it's not nearly as thought of, I don't think, as nuclear is in the context of either generating or playing a role in providing energy for us. What role do you see hydrogen playing potentially as we move forward? Hydrogen has a really important role to play as we look at both decarbonisation and uh, support of industry going forward. Um, Dennis mentioned uh, semiconductor facilities that will be built in our state. They require a source of very pure hydrogen and hydrogen availability 24 hours a day, seven days a week. As we look at moving away from fossil fuels for transportation, we have heavy haul trucks, we have long distance trucking, 
we have snow ploughs, we have a large inventory of vehicles that need to move away from using uh, diesel and petrol as a fuel. Hydrogen is one great option. In the northern part of our country, electricity or electric vehicles may not be the best solution because in the winter, battery life is much poorer than it is in the summer. So as Dennis mentioned earlier, we need to think holistically. And yes, we have important aspirational goals, but there are different ways to get there and we have to be pragmatic. So I see hydrogen playing uh, an important role as a fuel. Hydrogen, if produced with nuclear, can then be used to produce ammonia. So we're not just locked into one synthetic fuel, we can generate different synthetic fuels. And ammonia might be, for example, a better fuel for aviation than hydrogen. So there are some real opportunities here, as Dennis said, for New York State to be a leader. And we ought to grab those opportunities and run with them. Some people have talked about hydrogen playing an important role uh, in providing us capacity for energy storage mm -hmm. as a perhaps a more efficient way or a, a more managed way to store energy in the context of what our needs might be. What are your thoughts on that? This is a little outside my area of interest or body of knowledge, but to go back to Dennis's point a little earlier about energy storage. I was reading an article, I think written by DOE not so long ago, that said this country has three minutes total of energy storage. And Dennis, you mentioned having 12 hours, 24 hours of availability. We're not remotely close. So as we think about uh, energy storage, thermal storage, and the like, hydrogen has to be part of the mix. We can't put all of our eggs into, say, thermal storage. Hydrogen storage might be really efficient and it might be most efficient uh, co-located to hydrogen production facilities. So we need to think about this again holistically and there needs to be, we need to have a family of solutions, not just one. So Dennis, we're talking about the role of hydrogen and nuclear and it seems like both can and should play an important role. What do we need to do on the policy side, on the implementation side to sort of create an opportunity for nuclear and hydrogen to meet their potential? I really think we've got to be leaders in the research on how to apply both nuclear and hydrogen. Where we can't be followers, in New York State, when we set aggressive climate goals like we have, if we do not control the supply chain, the supply chain controls us and our ability to achieve the type of goals we set for ourselves we can become leaders in looking at the types of innovation, creative solutions that allow us to drive hydrogen to, a, to almost a preferred source, uh, whether it's through transportation, fuels, ammonia, fertilizer, metals production, et cetera. And it's got a supply chain element to it, all the way down to thinking about, well, maybe we'll design and look at green steel. And, and Andrew will touch on that because I think that's an important uh, concept that, that allows New York to go back to what it leads in, and that's in supply chain development. 
Nuclear allows us to relook at the location of key supply sources that ensure the resiliency of the electric system so that we're able to attract large-scale advanced manufacturing. If we focus on the types of renewable energy sources, the way we're looking at them today, we're going to be limited in our ability to provide consistent, resilient electric supply. Nuclear allows us to take a step back, think about where there's economic activity, and then co-locate these type of facilities where they're needed, or next to transmission systems that we need to increase. If we continue to redesign our transmission systems to keep up with our renewable energy queues, this cost will overrun the ability to achieve the climate objectives themselves. So when we look at it from a point of view of long-term potential, nuclear allows us to really think about achieving the zero emission by 2040, but do it in such a way that New York is a leader in how to accomplish that type of an objective for the benefit of New Yorkers and especially for our manufacturing sector. If I could pick up on that, uh, Dennis, uh, I, gr I agree with you. Uh, I think about Western New York and its rich history in steel production. That capacity is lost. The brownfield sites attached to those facilities remain. The infrastructure like rail to those sites remains. And a view of Google Earth will tell you that a lot of the transmission infrastructure remains. It may need to be updated, but the easements exist. So as we think about producing green steel, and our uh, Canadian cousins are thinking long and hard about green steel and converting the steel facility in Hamilton, just north of us, from uh, essentially steel production via coal to steel production from green sources, be they nuclear or hydro. So there's a laser focus from the steel companies in the United States and abroad on the production of green steel. Can we do it? Absolutely. But a green steel plant will need power 24-7, uninterrupted power 24-7. And that's where nuclear can play a role. Now, we talked a little earlier about modern nuclear not being the nuclear of the 1960s and 1970s. Just to provide some sense of scale, most operating reactors in the United States have a capacity north of 500 megawatts electric, most of them of the order of a gigawatt. The nuclear that we're talking about now will have capacities ranging from a megawatt electric through to probably 300 megawatts electric. Why is that important? Well, if you want a megawatt of power, then you buy a reactor capable of delivering a megawatt. The Department of Defense and the Department of Energy are working on these micro-reactors with a goal to deploy in the latter part of this decade. But they fit inside a Connex box, a container and easily delivered, easily connected to the grid, and when fuel is consumed, 
you replace one Connex box with a new Connex box and you take the old Connex box away and have the reactor refueled at a site and so on. So it's a completely different modern technology. But we see no reason to obligate someone to pay for a gigawatt of power if they need a megawatt, two megawatts or ten megawatts. So the Department of Defence under the Pelé program is deploying micro-reactors. Why? Lessons learned in the Middle East and supply chains dealing with diesel, they were extremely difficult to protect and expensive to maintain. Micro-reactors provide an opportunity to deliver one to ten megawatts of power mm. overnight via a transport aircraft. And the Department of Energy is looking at very similar technologies, but to support, say, the mining industry, to support remote towns, um, and so on. So this is a technology that is very, very different in dollars and size and scale than more traditional nuclear power plants. So we're hearing a lot about these emerging technologies and some of the early development of the supply chains for these evolving technologies. So we've got the State University of New York at Buffalo, which is a SUNY flagship university with a lot of capabilities and a lot of folks like you, Andrew, that are part and parcel of the, the faculty there. In your view, what role can an institution like UB play in helping to develop some of these technologies? I think the university has a role to play, but in many disciplines, in the sciences, in engineering, but to achieve our climate goals, we're going to have to engage planners, policy makers, lawyers. So a, really a skill set that embraces nearly every department on the University of Buffalo campus. So I might look at much of this through the prism of engineering and science. But I recognise that if we're going to deliver on our decarbonisation goals, it requires more than engineers, more than scientists. The university does work in workforce development. And as we transition from fossil fuels to other fuels, including nuclear, we're going to need to upskill or retrain a workforce. So we can bring that to the table. So I look at this focus on clean energy and clean industry. In my opinion, it's the moonshot of my generation. When I was a very little boy, we went to the moon. And that was a tremendous achievement over 10 years. If I dial back into my father's generation, the Manhattan Project, we went from a flat top mesa to detonating the Trinity weapon in three years. A tremendous scientific undertaking. We can do this. It's all hands on deck and the university brings many hands to bear. So the university can certainly support the engineering, the rollout of the technologies. We have a really important role to play and we stand ready to help. So Dennis, how do we take that capability, say that the University of Buffalo and other institutions like it across the state have and engage them in implementing the changes, the, the supply chains, the development of new technologies that we need to meet these goals. Yeah, I, I just, I've always looked at the SUNY system throughout my entire career, 
almost like they're a microcosm of cities, towns, and villages. There's 64 SUNY campuses, two flagship university. One of those universities, the University of Buffalo, contains School of Management, School of Engineering, and the School of Law. Technology, business, and policy, as Andrew pointed out. We have to look at the entire spectrum. 64 campuses, many of which own their own substation and their own distribution, electric distribution system within the campus. Think of all of the different applications that we could be testing to determine the best outcome, the best type of technology to meet our climate objectives, but do it in such a way that's replicable. And in order to be replicable, it has to align policy, business, and engineering. And we have that opportunity. So I look when I look at the University of Buffalo, and in all uh, due respect, I, I also sit on the, the Dean's Council for the School of Engineering, and we look at this not from the point of view of policy, but from the point of business. Uh, the Dean's Council is comprised of a cross-section of people, manufacturers, people in consulting, people in other academic environments, and so we want to look at the world holistically, systematically. The university system in New York has this wonderful op opportunity to treat the 64 campuses as a demonstration. So when the Climate Action Council gets back together after five years or the implementation of the scoping plan, we'll have data to look at. Not an econometric model, not speculation, not theory, but data. And Andrew pointed out one key component, and that is that they also look, the university looks at workforce development. So when you look at the, what the focus is of the New York's Climate Act on disadvantaged communities, that we seek to spend up to 40% of the total CLCPA spend to quote unquote benefit our disadvantaged communities. We need to spend more time on defining the metrics within benefit because if you don't define metrics, what you have is a spending plan, not an investment plan. And if I look at where most of the impact of a electrified economy is going to occur, it's going to occur in our cities. It's going to occur where our distribution, electric distribution system is not geared towards a fully electrified economy. So think about where the biggest benefit could be in terms of hydrogen and looking at who installs the fuel cells that hydrogen can, can be a part of. Who actually sets up and manages the fuel stations that hydrogen could be a big player in? And if there's nuclear closer to our communities, that also creates the type of jobs that will take the word benefit and turn it into a metric which really means that we're providing something of true value, economic wealth to our disadvantaged communities. We have got to stop kicking that can down the road. It's wonderful that we focus on clean air.
but we can capitalize on the clean air through solutions that create the type of jobs that are family sustainable and allow our disadvantaged communities to control their own future. So to build on what Dennis was saying, university campuses can serve as ecosystems to develop, test drive and roll out technologies that can then be scaled to communities. So we often lack test beds and it's one thing to have a test bed on the site of a national lab a hundred miles from your nearest human. That's less than useful in my opinion. So we've talked at the University of Buffalo about being uh, an ecosystem, an energy ecosystem. So there is a focus on the transition to non-fossil fuels for vehicles, for heating and the like. And I think we can play a greater role, frankly, going forward. That requires investments from the state, from the federal government. But university campuses can serve as ecosystems to Dennis's point, 64 campuses, they're not all the same size. So we have a wonderful opportunity here to test drive a spectrum of solutions. And quite frankly, you invest in five solutions and two or three turn out to be optimal. That's a tremendous investment. And in fact, that's how, our, that's how NASA, that's how the Department of Defense and the Department of Energy have uh, driven innovation in times past. They seed multiple enterprises and then down select. And we could do the same using university campuses as test beds. So I think that's one important point. Another is that market forces will ultimately drive the energy transition. Policy is really important. Aspirational goals really important. But we've seen the country transition away from coal, not so much for reasons of policy, but rather the markets driving it. I recognise that market forces will help drive the energy transition. We just have to make sure that this energy transition benefits everyone. To get to Dennis's point of a few moments ago, we can't let our disadvantaged communities bear the brunt of this energy transition. We have to be equitable. We have to be fair. And I think the, go the governor has a focus on this. She understands it, and that's great. I think we all embrace it, regardless of political affiliation. So as we drive this energy transition, we need to make sure that the folks that benefit the most uh, the folks that are the most disadvantaged now. Can we do that? Yes. And I look at Western New York, frankly, as a grand opportunity. We could become the global centre for clean energy, clean industry, co-locating power generation with power use, use of process heat. We, could, we have hydro. That's a 24-7 resource much of it's already spoken for. So as we look to grow our economy in Western New York, we're gonna need more power. We're gonna need more process heat. How do we do that? That's an important discussion to have. Nuclear has to be part of the mix. Um, 
So we have the opportunity of a lifetime to fundamentally change Western New York for the better to benefit everyone. And that's a passion of mine. And as I think, it's a passion of the three of us. So we have this opportunity. We ought to grab it and run with it. And I think if you look at uh, the goals that we've set for ourselves in a projection to be 85% by 2050, who are the leaders that are going to bring that those solutions to the table? Well, it's today's students. It's today's engineer students. It's today's chemical students. It's today's law students. It's today's business students. If you look at the demographics of today's uh, college entry level students coming in, they all want to make a difference in terms of, quote unquote, saving the planet, being part of climate change. Wouldn't it be fascinating to have them designing what the world looks like by 2050 through their educational process, so that when they leave their educational process, they leave with an experience of a lifetime. How do we train students today to think more globally, more holistically? Well, you do it by giving them the opportunity to work with other disciplines, to understand what can and cannot be done to understand what is feasible, what is not feasible, to understand what is economical and what is uneconomical. Take the emotion out of the discussion, bring in more facts, and you'll find that the probability of being able to achieve the goals that New York sets for itself, that probability increases tenfold because you have individuals that are passionate about the outcome. Terrific. Well, this has been a great discussion, and I've really appreciated the, the different viewpoints you both bring to this discussion. Thank you, Dennis, for joining us. And Andrew Whitaker from the University of Buffalo, thank you so much. You really contributed to, I think, an important part of this dialogue, and that is breaking down some of the stereotypes and some of the almost mythology around some of these different approaches that we're going to need to use and to embrace in order to achieve our climate goals. So I appreciate both of you joining us. Thank you, David. Yeah, thank you, David. Thank you, David.